Well, good morning. It is great to see you. Thanks for being with us at this 9 a.m. service. Uh, Sam just prayed. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's great to see you. Uh, glad to be together. I uh, hope you all feel welcome here this morning. Uh, and especially if you're a newer guest, we're glad you're here and joining us. And uh, as Timothy said, today's the first Sunday of Lent. It's a season uh, where the church, uh, differing traditions, uh, and Christ Central does embrace this season. Uh, and in the season, what the church has done is it embraces uh, our mortality and our sin so that as we repent, we're opened up to the glorious new life that is found in Jesus, the new life that Jesus gifts his people through his death and resurrection, which we will triumphantly celebrate come Holy Week and Easter Sunday. And so I'm glad uh, that you're here uh, as we begin this season together. Uh, the, you know, the experience of financial recession uh, living in a society where money is flowing uh, in such a way that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Owning second homes, it's common. Spending lots of money on the interior design of one's home is popular. Sexual liberty is practiced. Alcohol is greatly consumed. People working seven days a week because of personal ambition and personal profit are ultimate. What I just described sounds a lot like present-day Durham, North Carolina, but I'm talking about Israel during the time of the Old Testament prophet Amos in the 8th century BC. This morning in the season of Lent, we're doing a sermon series in the Old Testament book of Amos, and I think you're going to find this study to be relevant, humbling, and a little frightening. Uh, the people of God lived in the society that I just described that sounds a lot like ours. And they were very religious. Their centers of worship were, were often packed, standing room only. Sacrifices were offered timely. The musical side of their worship was keenly studied and professionally played. Most people would have observed the people of God and concluded that they were thriving. But there was a southerner from Judah, the prophet Amos, who's been observing the people of God and what he sees is not a thriving people, but rather a formalism and a traditionalism that serves as a mask to cover up the spiritual reality that the people of God are standing on their last leg. Amos observes a religion that is abhorrent to God. And so he heads north from Judah to Israel to call the people of God to practice true religion, a religion that rests on God's grace and faith and repentance a religion that has a strong commitment to the obedience of God's law, and a religion that is ceaseless and relentless in its care for the poor and the needy. And so I'm excited in this season for us to study the prophet Amos and to turn our attention to God's word. And so if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to look this morning at Amos 1, verses 1 to 2, and then Amos chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. You'll notice I'm jumping over much of chapter 1 and 2. I will refer to it, but for our purposes, I'm going to read Amos 1, 1 to 2, and then verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. This is God's word to us this morning. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. 
You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken, that you've given us your word, and we pray that it will accomplish its purposes in our hearts and in our lives and in our community this morning. We pray that you would bear fruit in our lives and through our church to the city and to the world because you have spoken and we have listened. We have been changed because we've met with you. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing. We ask you, Jesus, to speak to us yet again this morning. We are listening. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, one of the best things uh, on TV, in my opinion, these days is Coach John Mosley who coaches basketball at East Los Angeles Community College on, Nat- on Netflix's Last Chance U. If you've not seen uh, season one or two of ELAC on Last Chance U, do yourself a favor, go watch it. Start it this week. Uh, ELAC, East Los Angeles Community College, is a junior college. Uh, most of the basketball players go there with the hopes uh, that it will serve as a springboard uh, to fulfill their childhood dreams of playing basketball on bigger stages, D1 programs that they hope to go to. Coach Mosley, he's a coach, like a coach, 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 if you know what I mean. He's fiery. He's intense. He's not scared to get into his players. He doesn't hesitate to discipline. He's also a Christian who doesn't shrink away from talking about his faith in Jesus. But he is, he's intense. And he gets on his players about their grades, their work ethic, how they treat one another, how they play as a team. He's tough. But his toughness is motivated by love. He really wants his players to succeed in life. In episode five of the second season, it's a deep dive into what makes Coach Mosley Coach Mosley. And it's this beautiful episode of of him going back to where he grew up in Los Angeles, talking about the gang violence and poverty and how basketball was his hope to a better life. Many of his players come from similar backgrounds as him. In this episode, he said this. He goes, many of my players have never had someone fight for them, believe in them, tell them that they are made for more, and so I want to be that person for them. Coach Mosley is kind of a modern-day prophet. By any means necessary, he wants the truth and his voice to reach the ears and the hearts of his players so that they aren't merely acting the part, but they are living into who they are made to be. Amos is God's prophet, and he cannot handle seeing the people of God acting the part and not living into who God has called them to truly be. And so he travels from Judah to Israel to preach a message that will hopefully reach the ears and the hearts of God's people. In Christ Central, we need to hear God's voice through Amos. 
So that we're, we're not just a church who gathers here on Sunday mornings and in city groups and Bible studies and we do some service projects every now and then and we sure do look good and we act the part, but we miss being the true people of God that he's called us to be. In the section of Amos that we're looking at this morning, it's bracketed by Amos chapter 1 verse 2 and Amos chapter 3 verse 8. And both of these verses give us a vivid picture of a roaring lion. And so I want us to look at three things this morning. The God who roars. Second, the love of God that confronts. And third, the patience of God that leads us to respond. Those are the three things we're going to look at. Let's look first at the God who roars. We see this in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Verse 2, it says, the Lord roars. God is depicted as a lion roaring. I don't know if you've ever seen a living lion. Maybe some of you have. Uh, but I'm guessing for most of you, it was a lion inside of a cage, maybe some type of a zoo. But what if you came face to face with a lion that was not caged? In 2005, uh, I was able to visit the country of Zambia, and our group went on a three-day safari. And one evening, I was a part of a smaller group of five that loaded up into this open-air jeep to go looking for wildlife. And about one hour into the trip, the tour guide puts the brakes on our open air. You get open air. There's no top on this thing. Puts the brakes on this open air Jeep. And then he whispers, lion. And there was this huge lion walking down the middle of the road right toward our Jeep. The tour guide pulls off to the left and we wait. I'm in the back of the Jeep on the far right side, closest to, to this road. And the lion is just walking down the road like he's the king of the jungle, in no hurry at all. Now, the tour guide had told us the day earlier that when a lion sees a jeep full of people, it just sees one big object, that it doesn't see all the different people in a, in a jeep. So he told us. And so I'm putting all my faith in this tour guide because this lion's walking right toward us down in the middle of the street, and he's going to walk right by me. I literally could have reached out my arm almost and touched this lion. And as it's moving toward us, my heart is pounding. I'm terrified. And then it just slowly walks right on by. And I'm sure if you would have seen me, I look like a ghost because I was so scared that this lion might get a whiff of me, might all of a sudden begin to piece together that we're people, and then turn toward our Jeep and pounce. I was terrified. The presence of a lion is terrifying. How about the roar of a lion? A roar is a sign that the lion's about to act. It's about to attack. It's about to pounce. And Amos says God is a roaring lion. That there is an appropriate level of fear that God deserves. When Amos says the Lord roars, he uses the word Yahweh. And in doing so, he is associating God with Moses in Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush and says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. And then God says, do not come near, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then he declares to Moses that he is Yahweh, the Lord. And this flame of holiness burning in the bush becomes the mountain of fire burning with God's presence, his holy presence in Exodus 19. If you were to read between Exodus 3 and Exodus 19, God delivers Israel out of Egyptian bondage. He saves Israel. And then he destroys the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He brings judgment 
on Egypt. So what Exodus is teaching us about God's holiness is that it entails both the salvation of God's people and the overthrowing of his enemies. The holiness of God includes both God's mercy and God's wrath. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, And God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God loves to save. God loves to show mercy. But verse 7, Exodus 34 says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God must punish sin. I don't know if you notice in Amos 1, verse 2, from where the lion is roaring, from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem. Amos portrays the Lord as roaring from the temple, from the place where God had chosen to set his altar, because the altar was the place of wrath. On the altar, an animal would be placed and killed and slaughtered, and blood would be, would be shed in order to pay for sin. The altar was also a place of mercy. For there the people of God found the balm of forgiveness as their sins were atoned for. God is holy. He's holy. He saves by his mercy and God judges and punishes sin. Did you know that only once in the Bible is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree? Only once is an attribute of God mentioned three times in succession? It's around the holiness of God. The Bible says God is holy, holy, holy. Not merely holy. God is holy, holy, holy. The Lord roars. And the roar of God brings rightful fear to our hearts. Rightful alertness. It should cause all of us to examine our lives. To reflect and to see how and where we're living in sin so that we can confess our sins. The God who roars. That's my first point. My second point is the love of God that confronts. We see this in chapter 1, verses 3, through chapter 3, verse 2, most of which we didn't read, but I'm going to give reference to here. The love of God that confronts. Maybe as I'm sitting here talking about the holiness of God that must punish sin, you're having a hard time with, with this picture of God. But I want you to think about this. If there is a God... Don't you want God roaring with judgment at Russia right now? Don't you want God roaring with judgment as, the, as Russia kills many helpless Ukrainians? Don't you want God roaring with judgment at North Korea or on the drug cartel in Mexico? But when the crosshairs of God's judgment are placed on you, it gets uncomfortable. Amos begins by calling out the nations surrounding Israel. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammonites, Moab. And each time, if you were to read chapter 1 and 2, each time Amos uses this refrain, for three transgressions and for four. And what he's doing is he's using preacher's rhetoric here to talk about how sin is brimming over in these countries. That they are guilty of sins of barbarity and slave trading and promise-breaking that there's this persistent hatred of others and atrocities against the helpless and the poor. Amos is a skilled and winsome preacher. I mean, if, again, he's preaching in, in, in Jerusalem. You can almost envision Amos preaching about these other countries, almost like how I just mentioned Russia and North Korea. 
He's preaching against these other countries, and the people of God are responding with some hearty yeses and amens as he's preaching. But what Amos is doing, he's not simply calling out the surrounding nations. He's gaining trust with the people of God. He's gaining their ears so that he can ultimately place the spotlight on them, which is what he does in chapter 2. And so I have to say this, blatant sins elsewhere must never deafen us, deafen us to the God who roars against us and takes our sins seriously. Or to put it the way Jesus said it, do not look at the speck in another's eye when you have a log in your own eye. Be slow to judge and quick to confess your own sins. Now, as we consider God putting the spotlight on judging Israel, I think it's important for us to remember what Amos says in Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. O people of Israel, that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel, they were the chosen people of God. Out of all the peoples of the earth, God made them his special covenant people. God decided to set his love on them, to give them his presence and his promises. And so it's out of his love for them that he is confronting them. And Amos 3 verse 2 says that he must punish their sin. Because genuine love confronts. Genuine love calls people out for wrong and into the right. Spoiling a child is not loving. So be careful that you don't think God's love towards you is licensed for you to grow into a spoiled child of God. Peter writes in the New Testament in 1 Peter 4, 7, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Being in the family of God does not relieve us from the judgment of God upon our sin. In fact, special love towards us requires special responsiveness from us. Now, we have to ask what sins are making God roar? Well, I think this is important, and it's a major thrust of the whole book of Amos. God is roaring because of how they are sinning against other people. They are failing to obey the command to love one another. They are oppressing and violating others. They are treating people as an object of exploitation for economic profit. They are turning against their own brothers and sisters, and they're, they're, they're storing up hatred and bitterness in their hearts towards brothers and sisters. They're taking advantage of the poor and the vulnerable. God is roaring because of the way God's people are treating people. You can't be right with God and wrong toward people. So let me ask you, how are you treating others? Do you ever use other people for your own purposes and gains? Is there bitterness in your heart toward anyone? How are you treating the poor and the vulnerable around you? I do need to say this. We do not earn salvation through our social engagement. We do not. But how we treat other people sure does reveal the authenticity of our faith in the God of salvation. One commentator said it this way, when divine compassion finds no reflection in human compassion, then the altar is visited in vain. Being the chosen people of God who experience the love of God does not lead us to moral complacency, but rather to moral ambition. Our staff team is currently reading the book Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. 
was written in 1949. Howard Thurman was an African-American preacher and professor hailed by Life magazine as one of the greatest preachers in the 20th century. And in Jesus and the Disinherited, he shares this story. It was 1935, and he was serving as a chairman of delegation sent on a pilgrimage of friendship from the students of America to students in India, Burma, and Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. And after speaking one night at a law college, the principal of the school invited him to coffee. And the principal asked Thurman, what are you doing over here? He goes, I know what the newspapers say about a pilgrimage of friendship and the rest, but that's not my question. What are you doing over here? This is what I mean. And then he continued, more than 300 years ago, your forefathers were taken from the western coast of Africa as slaves. The people who dealt in the slave traffic were Christians. One of your famous Christian hymn writers, Sir John Newton, made his money from the sale of slaves to the new world. He is the man who wrote how sweet the name of Jesus sounds and amazing grace. The name of one of the famous British slave vessels was Jesus. The men who bought the slaves were Christians. Christian ministers quoting the Apostle Paul using their religion to sanction the system of slavery. And continues, you've lived in a Christian nation in which you, you've been segregated, lynched, and burned. Even in the church, I understand there is segregation. One of my students who went to your country sent me the, the clipping telling about a Christian church in which the regular Sunday worship was interrupted so that many could join a mob against one of your fellows. And when he had been caught and done to death, they came back to resume their worship of their Christian God. And then he said, I am a Hindu and I do not understand. Here you are in my country standing deep within the Christian faith and tradition. I do not wish to seem rude to you, but sir, I think you are a traitor to all the darker peoples of the earth. And then Thurman writes in his book how he ended up spending another five hours with this principle talking about how Jesus and Christianity was different than the hypocrisy of Christians. Hindu principles calling out hypocrisy. The profession of Christianity didn't match the life of Christians. Now we aren't living in 1935, but a, a timeless truth is this. Sin lives within the heart of every man, woman, and child in all of our hearts. And sin can lead all of us to treat people as objects rather than the image of God that deserves love and dignity. We too can be hypocrites who profess the right thing about God and treat people wrong. And the love of God confronts our moral complacency. How we treat people matters to God. So we, we have to examine our lives. We have to examine the structures and systems of our society that we are all participants of. And it, and it must lead us to repent of our social misdemeanors and our social felonies that are on all of our social and all, on all of our spiritual records. And we break the law of God by not loving others in the way in which we've been loved by God. And God confronts this in love because the way we treat people reveals our true religion. The last thing that I want to see from this passage is the patience of God that leads us to respond. Chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, we see this. In, in verse 3 of chapter 3, it says, do, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? And then verses 4 to 6 has this 
kind of before and after cadence? Does a, a lion roar in the forest when no prey? Does a young lion cry out from the den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Does a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Do you, do you feel that kind of before and after cadence? And one would assume verse 3 would have that similar cadence. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? But there's nothing. There's no second half to verse 3 because Amos is leaving it open-ended. Because he wants Israel to respond. Because God and the people of God are the two who walk together. And how they re will respond is still to be determined. 3 verse 8 says the lion has roared. But the lion hasn't pounced yet. Because God is wanting his people to respond. The God of Amos is patient. It's what the Apostle Paul tells us about God in Romans 2 verse 4. It is the kindness and it is the patience of God that leads us to repentance. When judgment comes, it is long and overdue. Because God is a God who turns his face towards the world and it is a face of predominant mercy. God longs for all to repent. Scripture teaches us that when God judges, it's accompanied by tears. I mean, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, Jesus looks over Jerusalem. He's looking at the people of God and he sees their sin and rebellion and Jesus weeps. The reason the lion is roaring but has not pounced it's because the Lord wants all of us to turn to him. Maybe for you that means for the first time ever to put your tr trust and to put your faith in Jesus. Maybe for you that means to repent again and again when we sin, when you sin, and to put your faith in Jesus. God loves the people of God so much that he sent the prophet Amos. Verse 7 of chapter 3 said that Amos was given the secrets of God. I mean, this is picture of Amos in such intimate fellowship with God, God telling him the secrets, Amos going and preaching the revelation of God to call the people of God to true religion. But Christ central, someone greater than Amos has been sent to us. One who is in fellowship with the Father from all eternity, who knows all the secrets, who himself is the word of God, is the revelation of God. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb of slain on the altar of God. For in Christ, mercy and judgment meet. He accomplishes salvation by taking our judgment upon himself. And so the question is, will you respond to the grace and the love of Jesus? Because true religion is a faith that treats God as God. Holy, holy, and true religion is a faith that repents over and over where we have failed to love God and where we have failed to love others, particularly where we see in Amos where we have failed to love and be morally ambitious towards the poor and the vulnerable. True religion is a, fa is a faith when our vertical profession in God matches our horizontal love for others. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you help us to respond. Uh, Lord, as uh, much easier times to want to just preach uh, the, the grace of, of Christ apart from the, the justice and wrath and judgment of, of God. And we thank you that both mercy and judgment 
are part of your holiness. And we thank you that in Christ we receive mercy and judgment was taken for us and so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I pray that in this season of Lent, as we examine our lives, as we embrace and confess our own sin, that you would take us to a deeper place of examination and how we might say one thing and do a, do a separate thing. How we might say we love you, but then our love of others doesn't match our profession of faith. So would you convict us? Do you lead us to repentance? Thank you that you are patient and kind, longing for all of us to turn and to return and put our faith in Jesus yet again. Would you do that even now as we come to your table? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.